1: I'm the I'm the one. I'm Patrick Brady, host of Baytamen. Today I'm sitting down with somebody who was a former manager and director at Goldman Sachs in New York with a corner office. She worked at a lot of these big firms out there and decided last minute after she made her money to go and be a journalist and she reveals certain powers that American bankers have that's probably going to shock you. You are going to enjoy this one if you want to know more about the economy. You Nome know, Prince, thank you so much for being a guest on Baytamen.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. A pleasure.
1: It's good to have you on. So, first question, I'm going to start off with a soft question for you so we can kind of get to know each other. How close are we to civil war?
0: (laughs) On the streets or in the
1: markets? Give me both.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, here's the thing. Over the last um, 10, 11 years since the financial crisis, and then you add on to that, this pandemic, we've reawakened the economic instability that's inherent to many, many components of the economy and the population. Right? So when you mix economic instability with crisis, with inherent problems that exist, whether it be social tensions, racial tensions, economic inequality, and, and you mix that all together, um, you, you have a very perilous situation. Um, and if you put on top of that the fact that markets and the financial asset side of the equation has been helped by so much um, compared to the actual people part of this equation, um, th- then we are close. We're not even close. We are in the period of civil unrest throughout a lot of the world, including um, what we've seen recently in the U.S. But we're also at a at a point, um, and I call it a sort of permanent distortion between what's happening on the financial economy side, in terms of also how it is helped and subsidized versus what's happening on the real or the foundational economy side, the small businesses, the individuals, and and the things that they face. Um, So so that's where I think the civil element and the economic element are actually very much part of the same thing.
1: Okay, so you're saying we are there, we're not uh, almost there, we are there, but do you think, I mean, maybe the question I'd ask might be slightly different. Have you ever seen America as divisive as divided as we are today, uh, yourself. I mean, you lived in New York. You lived in different places. You've had a lot of different experience. You worked at some of the most reputable companies worldwide at their peak. People relied on them with the decisions that they made. You ever seen America at a point where people are divided, going at it, the riots, the protesting? Do you ever seen something like this yourself?
0: Um, no, I mean, I, I think we're in a very divisive um, point in, in America's history, at least in, in the personal history that I've experienced in, in my lifetime. Um, because of these kind of conjoining factors, because of the economy, because of finances, because of all the tensions that brings up, and because I think we are in a, in a very polarized um, part of uh, U.S. history. I think the world, to an extent, is, is polarized in many places as well. And so there's, there's a sort of feeding um, between our country and, and other countries and so forth around the world. But I think the fact that we have um, as much um, sort of instability and so many levels um, of individuals, of the economy, of, of, of just of races, of social elements and so forth, I, I have not seen it this this tense. So therefore I've not seen it this this bad. The financial crisis of 2008 definitely opened up um, more financial instability to a large swath of, of the population, that's definitely true. But, but there wasn't as much of a, a sort of tension and a, and a sort of almost a, you know, push to, to completely change. Um, out of our situation into something better for a lot of people, and the tension on the other side of others wanting to keep it exactly the way it is. Um, and so that, that tension, I think, is really much more apparent now um, in the wake of this pandemic than it had been in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008 or, or anything that, that, that I have. Um, experienced and I you know that, that includes the, the the wars that you know the us has been in and the demonstrations against those wars demonstrations to reduce debt throughout the world and so forth this is this is more visceral this is more spread out at the foundations um of the country
1: how, how much of this do you think is the media how much of it is China trying to take over meaning of control of power because there's a lot of moving parts right now you got pre-coronavirus, we were talking Brexit, we were talking China, we were talking tariffs, we were talking Venezuela, we were talking Saudi Arabia, oil, Iran, We yeah, had a lot of different things we were talking about pre-coronavirus. So how much of it's media? How much of it's China? How much of it's coronavirus? How much of it do you think is uh, a Trump and, uh, or anything else that I may not be saying? But there's got to be something that's the tipping point that's causing this. What would you say it is?
0: I think there's 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 a number of things that you mentioned that kind of come into play in sort of a pie type of of portion, right? So and I'm glad you bring up um, sort of how the international community and the international sort of globalized world was before the coronavirus and and now how it is, because a lot of it's the same. right? there There's more tension now, there's more uprising now, but a lot of the issues are are still there. For example, trade uncertainties between the US and China the, the the sort of battle between the US and China in terms of who's gonna um, be the most legitimized superpower um, going forward that's going to mark the 21st century we're still we're still in the young part of the century um, and a lot of stuff has gone down in terms of, of money-related crises during this century, but the result has been a lot of um, isolationism, You know, sort of a new form of um, populism, a new form of you know, sort of tariff controls and, and battles from, from that element of, of economics. Um, and I think that's gonna be um, ongoing to an extent. The, the, the China um, leveraged a lot of what happened in the financial crisis of 2008. I, I, I've analyzed this a lot and talked about it a lot and been there and so forth um, since the financial crisis, um, but they basically leveraged the situation where our Federal Reserve, the, the way the U.S. whole monetary system was created um, and then moved into the new part of the century. Um, and all the sort of cheap money and the asset buying, all the programs that the U.S. began in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, and they physically leveraged this to do a number of things. One is to get the uh, Chinese currency, the rent, into um, the SDR, the security basket um, of the IMF so to become a little more legitimate currency in terms of trade. Um, and they openly use that element. Um, when I say they, I mean the, the, the uh, former People's uh, Bank of China head, um, in conjunction with the IMF. So they were, they were trying to sort of pivot their power um, from the standpoint of our sort of loose monetary system with their more dedicated, as they saw it, monetary system. Um, so while we were using that money as a country to basically invest, ultimately, in financial assets, the markets, and so forth, and they did quite well as a result. Um, they were sort of using it to um, build alliances with countries that had been weakened um, in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. Um, and they did this with the BRICS countries. They, you know, they had the, the alliance with, with Brazil grow substantially, such that they became the largest trading partner with Brazil relative to the US. And so there was this juxtaposition, this fight that was going on since the financial crisis between um, these two superpowers. And now you bring in um, years of that into the coronavirus pandemic. um, and, And there's still a lot of obvious tension in that relationship. Um, but we're in a situation now where uh, China had the virus sort of first and, 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 and sort of got over it. You know, there's still cases. Beijing is still closing in parts, but sort of. And the U.S. is still sort of grappling with what that's going to look like over the number of months. And so China is able to kind of um, resurrect that, that sort of power position but they're also doing it in a way where they're containing Hong Kong and they're sort of annoying a lot of the trade partners that they've developed um, over these last 12 years. Um, and so that could mean a, a pendulum switch back to the, the US, but yet we're in a weakened part of our economy. So I, I think that pendulum swing between those two superpowers and, and, and how countries um, get sort of caught up in between that, um, it is actually a major point of general um, economic um, tension in, in the world outside of, where it relates to like the individual, to the population, to, to issues that people, small businesses, individuals are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I do think that's, that's a big component um, of, of where we are here because all the dominoes sort of fall around that from a large economical standpoint. And then you go down from multinational companies using both countries to middle, to smaller, to a supply chain, to small businesses. And, and, and there's a lot going on back and forth behind the scenes of every day life for you know real people.
1: You, you know, typically when conflicts happen like this, what we're experiencing, that's global, uh, some relationships obviously uh, uh, deter and there's a falling out. And then an enemy of an enemy becomes a friend. So people that weren't allies, they become allies. And so in this situation, are you seeing Russia, Iran, and China get closer? And are you seeing Iran, uh, U.S., U.K., and India get closer in this because, you know, India coming up. You just heard China's investing a few hundred billion dollars in Iran, which obviously Asia relies on the Middle East for oil. Seventy seventy six percent of oil comes from Iran and the Middle East. Are you seeing alliances being created? And if yes, who got stronger, who got weaker?
0: Um, so that's interesting as well. So the, the, the Russia-China um, connection of it got stronger in, in the wake of the financial crisis and into today. And a lot of it was because, and you throw Iran into that more recently, a lot of that was because of um, the oil relationship. China is a you know, majorly growing population. Um, they have turn to invest in their new sort of five-year plans in in green infrastructure, sustainability, fast trains, and so forth, but they are reliant still on wanting to have an independent supply of oil. um, And that's one of the sort of pivots that they've made to sort of find stronger alliances, create and establish and grow stronger alliances where, where that can be the case. Um, the, the relationship between China and Russia into, into this period has also been one of a currency relationship. Um, they, they, they have agreed to effectively transact in each other's currency along the way. And that's a way of kind of moving that from um, dollar denominated base trade or, or the old petrodollar based trade that sort of evolved out of the 70s um, and into today. It was a way to sort of um, combat that. Um, so, yes, that has um, been one element of strength in terms of alliances. Um, China had also strengthened their alliances in sort of the Asian region, um, in the smaller countries. Um, and they had actually had more conversations until kind of recently that went quite well uh, with Japan, who had been an old adversary of China, um, in order to sort of solidify um, their alliances and and create a lot of sort of commissions and sort of um, new um agreements um, between China and Japan into this particular peri- period. Um, there hasn't been anything new in the last sort of year-ish, um, and there's also been more tension because of the South China Sea and other things going on in that area. But so so there's been a sort of back and forth. In terms of the US um, and the UK and the UK and the EU and the EU and China, um, th- there's a lot of moving parts in that. I think what the UK um, how Brexit will ultimately look in terms of agreements relative to the EU is going to give us more clarity on what happens relative to the US. Because what's going on in this six-month period, as the UK and the US have been dealing with the virus, you know, three to six, however this, this lasts, um, the UK had for a while kind of forgot about their Brexit conversations because they were dealing with what was on the ground, which was the virus. Same thing with the US. So conversations between them have kind of taken a little bit of a back burner in terms of how trade agreements would look. I think that's gonna step up. I think that relationship, which has kind of not really gone anywhere very recently, is going to step up. And I think that China is going to have issues between the UK and Hong Kong, Hong Kong and China, um, China and the EU, which are going to make that whole arrangement um, from standpoint of trade diplomacy um, and power, a little bit looser than it might otherwise have been, weaker than it otherwise might have been.
1: You think China trusts Russia? Well, let me ask you in a different way. You think Russia trusts China more than they trust us?
0: Um, I, I think Russia would be trying to get what they can out of both sides.
1: Okay, I agree. <laughs> so I, agree. I,
0: I don't know. I don't know that it's a necessary a trust issue. It's it's a pragmatic um, issue. I think that they would be trying to ba- They are trying to balance.
1: I'm just I'm just wondering if they're if they're trying to use uh, capitalize off the opportunity right now that there's division between U.S. and China to get in there and say hey, let's uh, make our power place because I, I, the the one thing China and Russia has in common right now it seems like they both want to capitalize off of Iran which is weak right now with the sanctions and the people there the economy is not good people are afraid and the folks of power want to keep the power that's right and, and maybe both China and Russia are saying let's try to capitalize we don't care about being good with America but let's just try to at least take advantage of the oil that's there with uh, the challenges that's taking place. But do, do you think, are we getting to a point, like, do you remember when China was number seven economy, GDP, and it wasn't like at the top, and nobody really looked at China as anything crazy. We just kind of knew China was there. And, and when I'm saying this, I'm saying 30 years ago, 25 years ago. It's been a couple decades ago, right? And then all of a sudden, they did the Olympics and the opening to the Olympics, which was incredible. I was like, wait a minute. That's the best opening Olympic show I've seen. Do you think India's getting close to the point where they can compete for the top spot or do you think they're decades away from being there?
0: That's really interesting because the the period that you mentioned in China, how it used to be. um, So my first big international kind of banking trip um, was to, well basically China, Hong Kong, Philippines, Malaysia, that region. Um, we did a kind of central bank trip, me and um, a couple people from Lehman who were working on some products. And so that was kind of my first international foray, um, because Lehman Brothers wanted to have more treasury uh, government bonds sold into the Chinese central bank at the time. And so relationships was just sort of uh, being created. and 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 there was a power play on Wall Street as to who would basically become the People's Bank of China's, the central bank of China's, you know, partner. Um, and so that was one of the first trips that that, that I went on. Um, and at the time, you know, streets of Beijing were like you know, obviously it was a long time ago. Um, but the streets of Beijing were just you know full of um, you know no outside <laughs> Westerners or very very few. I mean, we were we were we were very very um, unique in that respect. Um, and I remember at the time the whole, the whole story was, well this is gonna open, like China's gonna open, it's gonna be a, a big thing, it's, it's central banks can get involved, it's, it's, it's monetary um, you know, sort of authorities are gonna get involved and it's gonna sort of be the next big thing. And it, it took um, decades um, for it to really become that from an international perspective, but it's not like it wasn't doing it then, it was just on a very sort of back burner, nobody really yeah. paying attention unless you were in it kind of thing. Um, so with respect to, to India, um, they're, they're ahead of that position because they have been part of the BRICS because they have created, you know, mm-hmm. the, the NDB, the National Development Bank, which is kind of this idea that there would be an IMF or um, World Bank equivalent to the West um, that was sort of run by these five major um, nations. And so they have been, um, and, and they have obviously a lot of, te- of a technological advance, they have a strong population, and they're trying to work um, towards becoming that superpower. I, I don't think yet um, they're at the level where they're um, that sort of challenge. Um, I, I would say maybe they're a, a decade, decade and a half behind um, China. Not that they're not growing, but but to sort of if, if you if you think of the world as having three superpowers, let's say, uh-huh. um, as opposed to two, which really uh-huh. we have, um, I, I think we're we're about at that trajectory. Um, it could accelerate, but but that's that's kind of what's going on. So it's a growing trajectory, but there's a lot of competition, um, right, from the two big powers and everyone who's trying to stack themselves in between um, as well. While um, India is trying to, to to promote itself, well, uh, I mean, to, to elevate itself, I should say. Do
1: Do you think uh, a coronavirus uh, uh, and the stories and the speculation that you know whether China released it or not, biowarefare, warfare, warfare, whatever you want to call it. Some say it came out, some say it's not. Let's not debate that because neither one of us are doctors to talk about that. I'm just saying, do you think that story hurt other countries trusting doing business with China? They kind of distanced themselves a little bit from China, started looking at other places where that could potentially benefit the people of India, where folks may say, look, I kind of trust India. They have a university called IIT. They develop incredible engineers. They seem to be better than MIT on a lot of different, you know, scores that I look at. And I remember being in uh, uh, India. I don't know when it was when we went to India and we were there with the chairman of uh, State Bank of, uh, uh, was it 2018 or 2019? We were there at an IIT, 5,000 engineers, myself and uh, the chairman of State Bank of India, Arundhati Bachari. This woman is a leader amongst leaders. She was on the Forbes top 20 most powerful woman around the world, 240,000 employees. And she said, you know, India writes the most life insurance in the world. I'm like, come yeah. on. She says, no, we have the most life insurance policy holder. I said, what's the data? 316 million people in, in, China, in India have life in 360. She says, yes. I said, huh, what, what's happening with India? She says, just watch. India is going to come up. So do you think the event of coronavirus hurt Others wanting to do business with China, and it benefited India to come up because more countries trust India than they do China.
0: I think there's two things on that. I, I do think that that trust um, from from the sort of multinational business community um, relates into how where they say is they where they see stability. So whether or not they trust that China did or didn't or something happened that we don't know about or or, or whatever with respect to the virus, um, I, I think the sort of uh, result of that. Um, would be wanting to do more diversification of their business in, in India um, for all the reasons you mentioned, and also the fact that it, it has an open society from the standpoint of information flow. Um, so if you look at all of that together, there's, there, there's more of a sort of um, democratic release of, of, of information um, within India and then from India to the outside world. And I think that actually um, is, the, is that pivot, is, is why India is therefore also more attractive. Um, aside from the growth, aside from the technology, aside from the minds, aside from the size, aside from the desire, um, is also that it has more of an openness um, within itself. And I think that's something that other countries can relate to um, a lot better. So I, I think with respect to China, that the, whatever has gone on or not gone on with respect to the virus, um, it's it's more indicative of, of the sort of... Uh, nature that other countries can have relative to, to, you know, be more suspicious of China simply because in general um, they don't allow the same level of communication flow amongst their people, obviously with what's happening in Hong Kong um, and also for international people who are working or, or traveling in and out of China um, or, or will be once, you know, all the barriers are sort of lifted um, throughout the world in terms of coronavirus bands. But But I think that's, that's an issue that is at the core, that transparency issue, that that freedom of, of communication issue, which is what surrounds whatever happened with the coronavirus. I think that's something that countries and companies um, do very much consider.
1: Yeah, because, you know, when you think about um, uh, uh, superpower, military-wise, you don't think India. You, you don't think about India as somebody that wants to go to war and wants to go. When you think about superpower, you think about nuclear, you think about Russia, you think about U.S. You think about, you know, certain uh, superpower, India doesn't come, India comes across as wanting to be more collaborative to work with. And you're talking about a 1.4 billion, whatever the population is, give or take. I mean, that's not a, and they're focused on education and, the, you know, it's coming up. Uh, their their prime minister is a strong uh, individual who believes in capitalism and innovation. So it's, it's very interesting to see what's going to happen there with them. But, You know, I sit down with different people, and I always watch their reaction on how they feel about China. And I'm curious to know what you're going to say. When I talk to Ray Dalio about China, he has a different angle. When I talk to President Bush about China, different angle. I talk to General Spaulding about China, different angle. Some of them are, we don't trust them at all. Some are very careful on what they say about China. And it's almost like they're uncomfortable because they have business dealings. How do you feel about China, and how do you view China yourself?
0: Well, I mean, I don't have business dealings with China myself, so I'll just throw that out there. But um, I, I studied for the last, um, well, since the financial crisis in particular, I mean, aside from, you know, I mentioned, I've, I've been in China back and forth for, for decades, but um, as I have lots of places in the world, but um, what I what I specifically look at is the kind of um, public communication that happens between the U.S. and China. And, and from my um, angle of expertise, the sort of central bank, the sort of monetary policy, sort of initiatives relative to currency um, that happened between the two countries. Um, and so with respect to China, um, there was a lot of, um, and there still is talk of whether they, they manipulate their currency or, or what have you to have better sort of trade um, positions and trade advantages. And I think um, any country really that that, that could, would, um, to an extent, you know, move their currency up and down to, to help their own uh, position um, and, I think we've done that from the standpoint of our zero percent monetary policy and, and, and the increase of the Fed's balance sheet. China's done it from the standpoint of moving their rates around um, and what they consider non-QE, which is um, you know moving money into their economy or lending money to, to regional alliances so that they become dependent um, on China. And so I look at more of a standpoint of how money is flowing around, and I don't really, um, and, and, and you can see from that perspective that there, there are points where China moved its money externally in order to build that strength, build those alliances, and and then where they've kind of been questioned about over overplaying that step, overreaching their alliances because of their military might. Um, so from from the standpoint of monetary policy, um, I think that they have tried to come into the world, but at the same, you know, in terms of the IMF, in terms of trade, um, but at the same time, I think in terms of their military might, or their sort of, um, suppression of, of what Hong Kong wants to do and, 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 sort of their, their, um, what they've done in the region, um, I think that's a negative. Um, I think it's a negative for, for the region. I think it's a negative actually for China and for the world.
1: It's a negative for China and the world. I, 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 uh... well, if
0: you're just just in terms of, I mean, and it, it's not that you know, it, it's it's that if you have the ability as a country um, to forge alliances or, or to leverage weaknesses with other countries, and let, let me talk monetarily, not militarily, for a second, it's it's one thing to do that, to take advantage of that, and to grow and do that, and, and China has done that over the last twelve years um, significantly. Um, it's another thing to then overstep um, your, your sort of military might. Um, and the U.S. does this also. I mean, it's a, this is what countries do. They become powerful and there's, there's this like moment, there's multiple moments, <laughs> but along the way there are moments where there's a choice to be made, whether sort of maintaining an economic diplomatic um, alliance is the number one priority or whether they're sort of overstepping from a more, um, yeah, sort of bullying or sort of militaristic um, pivot. And those things could be back and forth. And I think, I think with respect to China, um, they've had this, this run um, and now they're in this position where they're overstepping um, their, uh, the growth in their power effectively. And I think that's going to hurt China. Um, and I think with respect to the U.S., that then potentially becomes an opportunity to the U.S., because I think there are lessons to be learned from using um, monetary policy, lending, investment um, to push your alliances as opposed to just, let's say, investing in markets. Um, So I think think both of these superpowers did things in different ways and do things in different ways, but there are lessons on both sides.
1: Before we get into the Fed, because I think you were kind of alluding to that, which we'll get to that here in a second, is how do you think uh, uh, President Trump's handled the tariffs, the the trade war with China, how do, you, how do you think that's been handled the last 12, 18 months?
0: Well, I think one of the results of the last 12 to 18 months is that you know, both countries are trading less in general and with each other. You know, so, so, so where um, we have less of a deficit in trade relative to China because of the tariffs, it hasn't helped our overall trade position in general. Um, because the whole overall world, what has been happening as tariffs have been um, in play, have been sort of the battlefield, is that eco- economies have also weakened at the same time. Now, you could argue, as as you could, well, I could argue, um, that economies have um, been destabilized throughout the world, U.S. and China, and every country around and in between, um, because of the uncertainty over tariffs. And I think... The uncertainty over tariffs—we have them, we don't have them. They're going to be in a particular part of the industrial chain and in a particular part of the supply chain, make it very difficult for certain businesses, um, particularly the ones that rely on um, physical things like steel, like aluminum, versus say the technology sectors, which which don't as much. It's it's, it's a kind of separate separate uh, element of trade relationships. You know, more intellectual property and another thing, but the ones that are more reliant on a physical. Um, things, soybeans, agriculture, and so forth, um, it's, it's harder for uh, countries, but specifically the businesses that are running within those countries, to plan um, as long as there's uncertainty over tariffs. So I, I think that the way in which um, tariffs have unfolded throughout the world um, have led trade policy in general to be viewed with just tension. And I think, as a result of that, you know, if we just take out the coronavirus for just a second, which has just, you know, smashed things right now uh, further, um, we were looking at slowing GDP growth in the U.S. Um, that was happening throughout the world, as again, not just because of these tariffs or just because of trade, but you know, one is it's a cycle, you know, one sort of um, relies on each other, uh, on each, and um, and I think that that's one of the things that um has been the negative of of this particular. Uh, tariff battle is that it's it's it, it seems less planned and more reactive on all sides, really, um, than 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 sort of a more consistent trade policy could be that farmers that you know in, in, in industrial engineers that use steel and aluminum and build bridges or think about infrastructure planning, um, you know, have have had to
1: deal with. Yeah, I mean, uh, 128-month expansion, whatever the number one's, whether we hit 129 or 128, I mean, that's the all-time. It's insane to go that many months, assuming it's going to continue. Right. Uh, uh, that's just not sustainable.
0: Right. But,
1: uh, you know, I, I just, what is the alternative, though? Meaning, when you're saying negotiating with tariffs, uh, when it happened, it hurt a lot of people, both America and other countries, what is the alternative of not pushing China that for decades, none of the presidents, both on the left or the right, has pushed China. They're just kind of accepted the fact that a lot of these tariffs have been in place. And we've said we're fine with it. What would be the alternative? Just leave it the way it is? Because wh- whatever administration that decides to go strong against China, whoever that president is that does it, they're going to have so many opportunities of it backfiring on them. I mean, there's just so many opportunities because you have four years to get it done, And if you take the four years, take one out, because one of the years you're going to be uh, campaigning. So you got three years, right? Because that one year, it's so painful. So and then take the first year out, you really have two years to get it done. Two years is not enough to get something done with China to negotiate the tariffs. And anybody who takes that position, it's going to be disastrous for their reputation. It could be great, it could be bad. So what approach would you have taken if you're sitting, Trump calls you and says, I want you to be one of my advisors when it comes down to the economy on dealing with China. What counsel, what advice would you give when dealing with China on how to handle the tariffs better than the way it was handled?
0: So, so first of all, the, the way it was handled wasn't just about China. There was a lot of, of tariffs that, that popped out you know, to, to Canada and to Mexico, Mexico and then to you and then to you, to us. Gotcha. But what happened was just, just the, the way of tariffs – um became very sort of um uh spotty and,
1: shotgun approach just kind of like hey just put a tear up oh, i'm gonna do this no,
0: i'm gonna do that no i'm gonna do this i got it so so it it, it isn't that there weren't certain um products that, that 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 should be protected you know on 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 our side and and that there are things that we can negotiate in terms of trade policy and in terms of whether we call them tariffs or whether we call them, you know, required, which kind of ultimately happened in the phase one deal, um, you know, purchases to sort of equate fairness amongst the variety of, of products that we have. So, you know, you buy a certain amount of our agriculture, we'll do something else in return. That kind of conversation um, in, in a more fluid way um and around the world again, because it wasn't just what was happening between the U.S. and China. There, there was a lot of U.S. and other countries um, that in, in which there were these conversations going on as well. And and I think that had they been a little more, um, my my suggestion would be to have those conversations be a bit more strategic and sort of fluid. Um, from the get-go. That isn't to say that everyone does what they say. It's not to say every country's trustworthy. Um, It's not to say everybody will do what they promise to do. However, in the basis of creating an agreement and a trade policy, um, I would look at what what, what our partners need and what we need from them. I would negotiate on, on those components mostly. If I am looking at just looking at trade policy with China, I would sort of ring fence that. And I would try to make it um phased from the sort of beginning as opposed to i'm going to do these tariffs till this date and if you don't do this this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and i understand the nature of the of the sort of market part of that um, but but what it creates is a lot of instability in the supply chain all around that as well and and that in general um, has had i think had a deteriorating effect Um, so it's almost like i well almost it's almost like that deteriorating effect made it harder to have the same impact of the trade policy than it otherwise could have been. Um, so I would have probably sat back, said, take a breath, take 10. Um, what do you actually want to accomplish? Do you actually want to involve, you know, wine from France or you know, whatever? Like, you know, what what's the actual focus here? Focus. Um, and and then look at a multi-tier, potentially multi-phase um, agreement that that works.
1: That's interesting. And by the way, you know, a, a part of it is also style. You know, on, on what his style is. He's got a sh- real estate shotgun approach. You're not giving me that deal. I'm going to take this away from you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. So it's a well.
0: That's the classic. I walk away. Right. It's like yeah. you know you don't want this deal. I, I leave the room. You know, you deal. Yeah. Absolutely. But 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 on a on a on a international arena where people from you know the person putting you know gas into the tractor of the farmer in some you know farm in you know Iowa or whatever versus um, you know a multinational executive versus everyone in between. Um, there are different kinds of, of impacts. Um, so so yes, that was that is his style. I think history will ultimately look at whether that you know was effective or if other styles are more effective with respect to this trade um, conversation sure. or, uh, conversation. But, but I also think that in terms of general diplomacy, there could have been a way to, to do that walk away, but do it in a, here's our plan, here here is kind of what we want to do, and actually have it more sort of laid out and discussed as opposed to walking away every time and coming back and walking yeah. away and coming back. I think that's where um, the weakness came into play. Um, all around the world, from the from the trade battles, trade tariff battles.
1: Have you read *The Art of the Deal*?
0: Um, I have not read *The Art of the
1: Deal*. Oh, you haven't read his book. It's a very good book. If you've not read the book, it's an excellent book. So let me let me ask uh, uh, another question that has to do with China. So, if we're negotiating with China, and um, you know, the president's talking to you, and the team is talking, and they're saying, "Look." Uh, know me you just brought up yourself the currency manipulation is what they do okay and you said that they do currency manipulation but you also said everybody else does it okay fine yeah let's just say everybody does it but we know nothing about what they do because they don't have free press we have no idea what they're doing they tell us what their unemployment is we don't know who's reporting the unemployment it definitely cannot be 2.8 percent for the last 20 years so The reporting of data, there's no integrity in it. You're dealing with one and a half billion people to say you have unemployment of 2.8%. And there's currency manipulation. There is human rights challenges, the data we don't trust, a bunch of other things that we can get. Okay, you think it's fair to negotiate and say, you know, moving forward, this is what we would like. We would like to see you open up uh, China and allow Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, all our social media platforms to be there for your users, so we can feel more comfortable opening up, you know, a business relationship with you and lift some of these tariffs. Because through the media, with our media networks being there and our social media networks being there, all these Facebook lives and videos, we can see how people are being treated. Do you think that is a point to to put in, to put in there as for negotiation for us to be able to see a little bit more of? Um, transparency with their model and how they're treating their business. Do you think it's a fair uh, point to negotiate?
0: Yes, I do. And, and as, as I mentioned before, I think one of the main um, issues with regarding trust, um, and we talked about, you know, so sort of whether it's the coronavirus or, or, or sort of beyond that, is um, – is that element of openness, is, is that element of, of information share, you know, which which is better, for example, obviously in India, is is that idea of that transparency? Because um, whether it allows us um, to see what's happening from a human perspective, from an individual perspective, from a small business, a small business alliance perspective, say, between the U.S. and 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 actual, you know, people running, you know, the same forms of shops or restaurants or, or whatever um, in China, I, I do think that, that that is important. Um, you may um, have have seen this in your trips there, but um, I find it, for example, I, I, I continue to find this interesting. I just I just had this conversation recently with with, with someone who goes back and forth a lot. Um, is that in Shanghai, for example, and I can't speak to other other areas. Um, the Hilton in Shanghai, yeah. in in particular, um, has uh, you sort of. Uh, you know, clubby thing at the top, and everybody sort of comes in whether they're in textiles or, or equipment or uh, technology or, or or programming or whatever, and they all sort of like hang out and they communicate with each other, and then they sort of go their separate ways. And it's a very sort of internationalized element. And there, you can actually get on Facebook and you can actually Google things. So it's like there's this, and I don't know if that's still the case. This is this was just in in the in the recent couple of years. But I, I did find that odd because it, it was this there was a separate. Um, anti-firewall sort of situation um, in a particular area, which was particularly critical, and it was in Shanghai. Did you hear that? Um, which I would not have known had I not physically um, been there. And I—I mean—and—and and so there, there, there is a capacity to perhaps do what needs to be done when it when it has a very particular business-focused um, outcome, perhaps. Um then, from the standpoint of the overall country. Um, and so this was before tariffs. This was before um, actually this was, this, was, um, this was when I was writing collusion. So I would say this was um, 217, probably two sixteen actually was before the election. but but the point the point being that um, yeah, you know, if you talk about transparency and the sharing of of communication platforms and and information um from that perspective, I think it is important in today's world period, um, whether that is for business or for humanity, um, to have that open policy and to request that open policy and to have that open policy be a criterion potentially for trade agreements.
1: Exactly. That's that's the part. And I don't know why administrations in the past haven't negotiated in that manner, both on the left and the right. They just kind of left China alone. And, and the way... We left China alone. We allowed them to be a superpower that they are right now number two. It was with the help of America. You take America out, China wouldn't be number two. Uh, China needed America to be number two right now worldwide. You know, I say this to you because yesterday an article came out on Business Insider talking about FBI head, I don't know if you saw this or not, FBI head calls China the greatest long-term threat to the U.S. and alleges China plots to steal U.S. data and forcibly repatriate its citizens. And it it goes into talking about the Chinese government is engaged in broad and diverse campaign of theft and malign malign influence. And it can execute a campaign with authoritarian efficiency. They're calculating, they're persistent, they're patient, and they're not the subject to righteous constraints of an open democratic society or the rule of law. So for me, you know, I'm kind of glad Pompeo, India shut down TikTok. You saw that. India had TikTok there and, you know, one young girl committed suicide and she was a big TikTok star. India, they just said, let's shut down TikTok because China was able to get into it and pull up all your data. Like if you use TikTok on your phone and you leave it on, China can go on your phone and pull up any passwords and anything. They just said, oh, we sorry. We didn't know we had that. Yeah. And US has 180 million users on TikTok. And Pompeo just said yesterday that they're considering banning TikTok in US, which I believe it's a brilliant strategy because this adds to the point of you want us to do business with China? We'll open up TikTok, but you got to open up Facebook, Twitter, all this other stuff when it comes down to you. So uh, right. th- that was a very good perspective you gave at Shanghai Hilton, but did you have a re- rebuttal to that or respond to that?
0: No, no, I I, I agree that the, that the idea of having a sort of quid pro quo for um, the sharing of, of information platforms, the opening of information platforms, I, I think it's um, I think it's a necessity today, honestly, to have ultimately um, – Uh, trustable trade relationships, agreements, um, and also for companies doing business. Now it's not like, you know, international companies will be doing business in and with China. So the more, as they are, right? So so, so the more that there is also this sort of entire atmosphere of openness, or at least a more open atmosphere um, than there is now from the standpoint of these platforms, um, I think that just levels um, that whole field. And um, I think that with respect to China growing as a superpower, relative to the U.S. Um, I I do think a lot of that, I mean, it did happen from the standpoint of what hurt us into the financial crisis of 2008 and how they sort of capitalized um, and leveraged our system, our monetary system, our banking system, in order to grow their um, alliances and um, in retaliation kind of to our, at that point, instability inside at home.
1: What, what are the chances of Trump and his administration using the crisis that took place with coronavirus and blaming it on them to write off the $1.13 trillion of debt that we owe them and just say, we're just not going to pay you back this debt? Uh, what are the chances of that also being used in the negotiation? What are your thoughts on that?
0: So uh, my thoughts on that are that over over the years, um, there, there's been a lot of back and forth on how much the People's Bank of China, how much China owns of our of our Treasury uh, treasury bonds, our debt, um, and whether they will dump them from their side. You know, so there's always been that question. You know, can they do something to us by dumping treasuries? Can we do something by them by refusing to pay? Um, which which you bring up. So so both sides of that equation, um, I think, um, might be discussed. But the reality of the situation mm-hmm. is, it would hurt us to yeah to to, to not pay, even if it's China. It doesn't matter. It, it why, would hurt why is that? Us to sort of rene, because look at it as a full portfolio of treasuries. Right, we have, we have we have a you know twenty seven million dollar trillion dollar portfolio of treasuries in the world. Japan owns a piece. China owns a piece. Mm-hmm. Different central banks throughout the world, including the Fed, own a piece. Individuals mm-hmm. own a piece. Pension mm-hmm. funds own a piece. Right, everyone has a piece of this portfolio. So just imagine you take out five or ten percent of a portfolio like that. Right, you all of a sudden basically devalue, and this is the little price devaluation. I mean, I'm not even talking about the, the implicit guarantee or the government guarantee of our treasury bonds or anything no. like that. I just mean physical, you know, portfolio math. Um, that all of a sudden you, you have a situation where you, you devalue yourself, um, your own debt by either not repaying debt. And China, that was one of the reasons why they didn't, I think, sell all their treasury bonds. They stopped buying as many. That's true right? So they already kind of tried to play that. But what they also tried to do is look at their portfolio of treasury securities and say, you know what, if we just dumped them, like the world was saying we might do, um, that would devalue their portfolio. It would obviously devalue treasury bonds, but it would also devalue that. And it's the same thing um, for us. If we decide to do anything that calls into question, even with whichever country owns our treasuries, I I personally think that that would be detrimental to our own debt, which would make our debt more expensive because there's so much of it, our public debt, which would make it harder for us to run our budget and so forth, because it only takes five to 10% of a portfolio declining. I mean, as you, to, to just smash like the rest of it um, from a standpoint of pricing.
1: It's a very different perspective. It's a very different perspective. And I appreciate that insight because it makes you think about, but is there a way to say, you know, uh, return the shares or write it off not versus not even wanting to do it you know because if they do then on the credit market our you know reputation is hurt and it's gonna hurt us to deal with other nations when we have money that we need etc cetera, etc cetera. because China's not even the biggest a uh, 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 holder of our, our bonds it's Japan's first place China about yeah. like a hundred billion dollars or 200 billion dollars
0: right.
1: I'm just curious to you know if that's going to be used or not you know I, it, it, I, again I watch I, I you know how you negotiate you have 20 different things on the table. And you say these seven things I really want and these three things I'm not willing to touch at all. And they say these eight things we really want and these four things we don't want to touch. And you kind of, but you don't know that person's, they don't know yours. And you kind of assume it. I wonder if that's being used on the table by either party to use it as a, 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 a motive. And by the way, China may even use it to say, look, here's what we'll do. You all, owe us this much money. Here's what we're willing to do. I don't know. I'm just thinking if they're the level of creativity that's going to get to when they negotiate.
0: I I think that's, that's interesting. I I, I think, you know, whether it's on the table or not, and you know, it it might be, but, but the reality is China's effectively lent us money and we either pay them back or don't, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the sort of, you know, scenario we're, we're, we're talking about potentially, but, but they, they can choose not to lend us money. They can let their portfolio run down. And that's actually an, that's actually a position of, of power in terms of debt um, holding that they have relative to us, because if we say we won't pay, it hurts us more than if they run down their portfolio and just don't buy more treasuries, which kind of has been what they're doing. As you say, you know, Japan has jumped ahead of China in terms of who has the biggest book outside of the US. Actually, the biggest book is is the Fed. you know so years ago this wasn't even like a thing. Um, so now, basically, the Fed has the same amount of Treasuries as as China and Japan, which kind of dilutes their shares, um, if you will, in the portfolio of Treasuries. Um, so I, I think it could potentially be a tactic, and it might even be something that's thrown out um, and that you know financial media or, or you know t- discusses, um, and that could hurt or help the Treasury market depending on what side and what day. Um, but right now, um, I think that it would it would actually harm us, particularly with how we're increasing our debt load into the coronavirus pandemic after the financial crisis and with the Fed's balance sheet, you know, just ballooning, um, then I think it would, um, hurt them.
1: So talking about a president who got the bank to write off $900 million of his debt. So I'm just saying, you know, in his mind, if he treats everything as a business and even his tactics of, you don't want to do this for us. 25 percent tariff. Mexico doesn't want to do this. 25 percent tariffs. Oh, I'm going to lift the tariffs. I'm sorry. Three days later. Oh, Canada. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's like it's so shotgun, you know, it's shotgun. like uh, it's it's uh, but I'm just saying, assuming his reputation and his method of negotiation in the past. I, I uh, you know, to him, it's only one additional zero. You know, he's only dealing with a couple zero additional yeah. zeros. He's not dealing. That's the only difference for him. He, he doesn't see it as anything more than that. I believe. I may be wrong. Who knows? So let's talk about Fed. Let's talk about the Fed because you've spoken about the Fed before. And I've had Danielle Martino Booth here. I don't know if you're aware of her. She, uh, uh yes, I okay. And we've had other people that we talked about the Fed before, but you know, one question for you is the Fed has always got a lot of uh, conspiracies tied to it, right? It's always why it got started, who started it, what was the motive behind it, you know, the whole uh, uh, Jekyll Island, you know, the whole Jekyll Islands. So I don't know if you've read the book or not. Maybe I don't know if that's the book you've read or you haven't read that one.
0: So so I actually spent time at Jekyll Island. I, I went through the actual physical- so a
1: part of this whole deal. We finally you know, figured to, to, this out.
0: To see what happened, to, to actually see for myself as I do, um, when I do research, um, uh, to, to talk to their archivists and actually look at uh, one of the books that they had, they had guest books. Uh, this is not conspiratorial. This is just a fact. Um and who signed them, and who signed them around 1910 when uh, the sort of origins of what became the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve Act of 1913 were discussed. Um, and I have read uh, the Jekyll Island book. In fact, I've also read all of the um, presidential archival papers from Woodrow Wilson through Taft, you know, before that, um, yeah. and also from the Morgan Library uh, when I wrote All the President's Bankers. So, so and, and part of that, Patrick, part of that was to, um, to see for myself I didn't like I wasn't born an expert on the Fed. <laughs> um, you know I, I was' in banking for for a long time. the, the Fed and rates were an Alan Greenspan, and waiting for what he said was very important when I was um, involved, specifically working in in, in investment banking. Um, but but to see what really happened. And um, whatever is said from a conspiracy conspiracy or what conspiracy or not, uh, the reality is that the Fed was created out of necessity because there had been a panic in 1907 in New York, um, and it was a situation whereby the bankers were called upon, Morgan and, and, and a number of, of key bankers w- were called upon to try and calm things down um, by Theodore Roosevelt, who, who otherwise was a trustbuster, who otherwise didn't trust you know, big business um, in general. Um, but that was what was required um, between the president and the bankers at that time. But what it created was an uncertainty with, among the bankers as to how they could ultimately save themselves in the next crisis. And, and that was one of the impetuses for figuring out how to have a central bank, a reserve of money somewhere that could ultimately, um, and they didn't use these terms, these are, you know, I'm putting today on yesterday, um, but, but, but be bailed out if it was needed or have the markets be liquefied um, if it was needed. And that was one of the ways in which the Federal Reserve ultimately came into being when it came into being in 1913. It, it didn't happen under Roosevelt, it didn't happen under Taft, it happened under Woodrow Wilson, um, but it was a pretty bipartisan push, so it didn't really matter who was president, it was an issue of timing. Um, and that ultimately uh, created from a, a meeting that had happened in, at Jekyll Island in 1910 um, to the establishment of the Federal Reserve through that act in 1913. And, and, and the Fed has most recently, um, in the financial crisis of 2008, fast forward about 100 years, um, very much helped the markets, the banking system, um, and expanded its capacity, you know, by trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, most recently, um, in order to do that.
1: So, so, uh, so you went to Jekyll Island, and the six names: the Nelson Aldrich, the uh, the Piot, Andrew Henry Davis, and Arthur Shelton Frank. Uh, Vanderlip, Paul Warburg. Did you see all of those names there or no?
0: no? No, no, no. Let me let me go back. First of all, there is a picture of all of them there, but that's, that came okay. later and that's in the main hall, uh, the main eating area. But the, no, what I saw was Morgan's actual signature as someone who had been at Jekyll Island as one of the club members. So, so the way Jekyll Island worked um, and, and this, I also got information from their their, their their historian, is the way that Jekyll Island worked, it, it was a club, it was sort of, well, as he said, it was kind of like the first condominium for like, you know, the equivalent of billionaires at the time, where they would go with their families, predominantly over the end of the year, so like a Thanksgiving, Christmas kind of a period, um, and there would be a tremendous like, count of... Um, you know, sort of servants to individuals. They basically had all the comforts that they would have sort of at home, but at Jekyll Island. They would close off the avenues to go to Jekyll Island. Um, now there's a highway kind of overhang, but then there there wasn't. You had to come by boat. They would put posts throughout the town saying, you know, this is closed. This is the period. People are going to be here. It's going to be closed. And you had to have a membership. So Henry Hyde, the Rockefellers, um, you know, Morgan. This is not conspiratorial. This 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 is this is in their history um, to, to just come, to just physically walk onto that property um, from your boat at the time. Um, And one of the things that happened at the time was you you could have guests, but they had to be sponsored by an individual who had a club membership. And so what happened at the time was the the, the commonality um, actually of, of J.P. Morgan was with Aldrich, um, and Aldrich's son, actually, who was um, a, a New York banker at the time, but who wasn't involved in the, in the, in the six people. He just happened to have been a New York banker. He, he became, Winthrop Aldrich became the head of Chase for decades. Um, but at that time, he was not. Um, but the point is, there was, there was that relationship, and, and it was Morgan that actually just had the pass. He wasn't there. He wasn't involved. He was not physically at all um, at Jekyll Island at that time that the origins of the Fed were being discussed but he was the name on the book that was associated with these individuals. And so, so that's kind of how it, how it came down. They, they would otherwise not have been able to just get physical access onto the, onto the property. You know, it's like any now, you know, elite club thing. It's like you, have, you invite people in or, or they can't come in.
1: You're talking about six men, apparently that control a quarter of the wealth of the world. That's the data that you hear about, you know, So it's it's you you read about it. But again, a lot of people said it was a spoof about what the author wrote about him. And he said a lot of other things. But it's a story that picked up a lot of uh, attention on how the world wealth is controlled by a few handful of people. How much do you buy into that? Well,
0: so these six people weren't weren't. Necessarily all those people what happened was like Frank Vanderlip who was one of the people was was a sort of VP at National City Bank, Which is now Citigroup. So I mean there are there different people that were involved in the major banks at the time So yes, there, there was an awful lot of money represented at, at that meeting and and Nelson Aldrich was the head of what what we now consider the Senate Finance Committee um, And so he, he was a very established um, Senator and he had been going back and forth to Europe around this time anyway to collect information um, for Congress to create a central bank. So it wasn't like that, you know, this was all done at the spur of the moment. You know, this was something that was sort of um, being done um, and, and sort of being analyzed for a while. But what happened was he um, the, the plans, the blueprint that was created um, at Jekyll Island that was then presented to Congress in 1910 and it was debated in Congress under Taft and then ultimately under Woodrow Wilson. Um, those blueprints were presented to Congress. And this is in the congressional archives. This is not, I mean, this just happened. Um, And yeah, I have the footnotes in my book, but I mean, this was something that's actually occurred. Um, Two of the bankers actually um, uh, presented the idea to Congress initially because Nelson Aldrich actually um, had been ill for, for various reasons at the time, or at least that was said at the time. In fact, and this was in the New York Times at the time, he had been hit by a trolley car if you can even imagine trolley cars going down Madison Avenue, but before he went to Jekyll Island, according to New York Times, he he was actually in a trolley car situation. I don't know how badly he was hit. The article, but but the point is, so anyway, he was he was convalescing throughout this period. He did not, because of that or other reasons, actually initially present the plan to Congress. It was presented by um, two of the bankers that were involved um, in those six people. So. Yeah, whatever is said or not said, the, 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 the facts of the situation um, was that there were those people, as we know historically, um, in that room and as is currently up at Jekyll Island, which is now you know, a regular resort. It's been converted over the years. Um, but the presentation of the initial blueprint for what became the Federal Reserve um, was presented initially by two of those people. Um, and ultimately, it was passed several years later with a lot of back and forth From multiple bankers and multiple senators and multiple House of Representative Congress people to figure out how they could um, pass it in such a way that was it was palatable to sort of the electorate to the country. Um, And by the way, yeah, sorry.
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I I could go on and on.
1: (laughs) Well, by the way, it's very interesting. So the, the, the audience is going to be curious about this. So how much of what? How much of what is written in the creatures of Jekyll Island is accurate, and how much of it is conspiracy?
0: Well, I I I think the accurate parts um, had to do with the the travel um, down to uh, Jekyll Island and and how it was sort of done. I, I mean, it 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 was done in in a way to avoid publicity. Of course, publicity was different then than it is now. It wasn't twenty four seven. It was newspapers. Yeah. It, it was totally different. But, so it was easy, it was easier to do that. But but the sort of uh, clandestine way in which, you know, the dead of night and all that kind of stuff, it's dramatic, it's, it's kind of more dramatic in in, in terms of the, the telling of the story. Um, but that did happen, in fact, in Frank Vanderlip's um, notes, and, and his family has a foundation established um, uh, library for basically his records. And he was a prolific writer. He had been a reporter, actually, before he became a banker. Um, I did the opposite, actually, just I was a banker and now a reporter. Um, but, but the point is that he he, um, he actually, um, as do a number of those families, have, have notes and records that they kept very much for sort of posterity. There was a real sense back then, in particular in that part of the country and that part of our history, um, that they felt themselves to be bigger than themselves in that they had to tell their... They, they wrote a lot about what was happening, much more than um, happens today. And so... The story of going down and and the people that went down and and how it was done in a clandestine manner was was from Vanderlip's own Records now he could have been embellishing it. That's entirely possible. I don't know that was like, you know, he's dead but um, that I that I don't know Um, and in terms of how that book brought it up Again, it was it was it was more dramatic than even the dramatic telling of it by someone who was a reporter slash writer before he became a banker. Um, however, the actual mechanics of the story, um, the sitting down, the number of days that they were there, and he also wrote about what they ate and, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, he has some very Vanderlip not um, uh, in his own notes. Um, that that could have been for effect. I I don't know. Um, but the, the, the actions that like occurred out of it and the documents that came back to Congress and the fights in Congress over the passage or not passage or what it would look like and how it would go down, that all is pretty much, at least from, from my telling of it, in that I use the records themselves, um, information that's accessible to the public beyond the sort of more larger story that has kind of grown up around it.
1: Who do you know that knows as much about the creatures of Jekyll Island as much as you do? do you know? <laughs> anybody? Have you met anybody that knows as because you really went in to find out everything about it?
0: Well, so I, I did this not just on that. I mean, my my book and this is not, to, but like all the presidents bankers was like my like work for I I lived and breathed these presidents um, from you know, library to library of the presidents and also whoever. Whatever historical events sort of intersected their presidencies. In this case, it was Wilson. Well, from, from Roosevelt through, through Wilson, um, I don't know. I, I did Bill Greider's book. Um, so the I think it's the t- um, I'm going to forget the name now, but it's um, Bill Greider was obviously a, a major Fed historian um, as well, um, and and he's he's written more um, about the combination of history and and, and current um, well into mostly the Alan Greenspan days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've—he uh, he was one of the sources. Well, he his book was one of the non-publicly archival available information sources for for all the presidents' bankers. Um, so, I in terms of the history, um, those were probably the two main books out there. The two main Secrets authors:
1: Secrets of the Temple,
0: Secrets of the how Temple,
1: How the Federal Reserve Runs the Country.
0: Right. So, so he has a section in there. Um, that goes into the history and that, that sort of period and how it was created in the conversations um, that took place. I specifically read all of Woodrow Wilson's papers.
1: So let me ask you this. There's something I read about what Woodrow Wilson wrote, and it's so interesting that you're saying this because i got it right in front of me. Did he say this or did he not say this based on the research that you did? He said this apparently in signing of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, his book, The New Freedom, back in 1916, he said. I'm a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is controlled by its systems of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation, therefore, and all of our activities are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction, and a vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and durst of a small group of dominant men. Did he say this?
0: Um, So I I can't verify word for word what what he said, Um, but in terms of his papers, um, what I found is that he said a portion of of what you read, Um, and that... And that um, in terms of the actual, and I could probably turn around and get the quote or send it to you, um, but in terms of actually what he wrote um, or that was compiled in the Presidential Library of Woodrow Wilson, it's not verified. However, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, all, that, they, that he didn't say all of that as, as, as that quote goes, um, but it means that um, it, it isn't necessarily captured in the papers, that are in the presidential um, combination of, of Woodrow Wilson's... Um, is it
1: relatively close yeah. to what I read, meaning it's so It, 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 it is very... Yes. Okay.
0: Sorry?
1: No, I'm saying, is it close? Is uh, the yes. writing that you have, is it close to what I read, relatively close to the same beliefs?
0: It is relatively close, yes.
1: Wow. So so he regretted the decision of the Federal Reserve, the Fed, Fed being put together. He,
0: he regretted the idea of the Federal Reserve. He didn't regret that it was put together, and I'll, I'll tell you why that distinction, um, just to be sort of historical. In, in the wake of World War One. so World War One begins, he's in a situation where he's running the country, trying to keep the U.S. basically out of World War One in the beginning of it, right? Um, we're, we're a nascent country trying to become our own power, but like way, way new in the whole game. Um, he actually relied on the Federal Reserve and the bankers to work together when ultimately he was pushed into or decided or however you look at it, um, going into that war um, to, to, to basically help the allies. Um, and, and part of that decision was based on the reliance of the bankers on the Fed, right? They did just created this new thing, but they hadn't used it. They hadn't needed to use it. He didn't need to use it, right? And all of a sudden we have the need to raise money to, to be a part of a war, or at least to fund our allies. The first thing we did was fund our allies, not enter the war, so the UK, France. And, and then we ultimately um, were involved to a later part of that war. So, so in the beginning part, he relied on actually the, the Morgan relationship just because it, it happened to have been involved in financing, just just physical percentage-wise um, of war-related um, activities. And then some other banks because of war-related bonds that then people bought to, to finance part of the war. Um, but, but he did rely on it at that point um, as the backstop for the banks. So I, I mean I don't it, it he it, it could have been um, a situation where he definitely talked about being concerned about having an elite group of bankers or a Fed running the finances of the country, however also in a situation where he believed it to be sort of expeditious for policy, kind of didn't. So it's, 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 just, it's just not entirely black or white in that respect. I think no. I, he was a very intelligent president. He did things right and he did things wrong, right? As they all do. Um, but I think, I think he weighed that. I don't know him. This is just from my readings, obviously. Um, I think he weighed the benefits with the negatives um, as, you know, as the situation kind of like presented itself. And war was a big situation.
1: That's kind of like saying Bezos, Buffett, Gates, you know, uh, Ellison, a handful of these guys make all the decisions in the world. You know, it's, it's the Walmart family to be able to do that. But America's in so much debt that America goes to billionaires to bail them out. And, and Chase was a powerful man at that time to be able to, you know, can you imagine a person bailing out a country and supporting out? That's, that's a weird place to be, to have that kind of wealth.
0: It, well, I mean, 1893, 19, you know, you had, you had, you had those families, um, you know, particularly the, you know, the mortgage, and the, so you you had them have more money than the government. And we, even when you know, talk about basis on those guys today, you, you still have that balanced to a, a, a very large book of treasury bonds and a very large um, sort of economy. We didn't have that as a nation back then. So the power actually was... Quite more acute back then, um, because it was concentrated relative to what the government had in in a much much greater quantity. I mean, yeah, you can't imagine President Trump calling up, well, J- Jamie Dimon and saying, C- "Can you loan me out of like your personal money, um, you know, something to help me with this whole China negotiation thing?" Easy. Right. I mean, it doesn't happen today, yep. it, but back then, you know, the the, the largest trust buster you know from a reputational perspective and you know he's on mount rushmore teddy roosevelt had to he sent his treasury secretary to do it but he had to ask morgan for for help
1: so obviously it's a different time we were not as powerful we were not as thick we were not as strong we didn't have the kind of revenues that we had we didn't have it even have the tax system yet when the first taxes was what what year 1913 was in Uh, when we first had our 1913 give or take. So you're talking about there is no revenues coming in for him to be able to do anything. So it makes sense. It makes sense for the richest people to be the people that you got to go to, to give you the money. Do you think the fed did more good or bad to America?
0: Over history or no? Over
1: history, over history.
0: Um, Well, I, I think over history, um, the Fed wasn't, though it was powerful, it wasn't as powerful as it's become recently. So it, it has done a disservice, I think, recently, i.e. the last, really this century, uh, more so because it's been the backstop um, of what it considers to be liquidity or part of its dual mandate of, of you know, achieving sort of price and, and um, unemployment stability. And in doing so has created a real financial hazard um in terms of the cheaper rates and the buying of right now every single type of security um and also doing that in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008 so it's it's taken out um you know we talked about transparency before um in a different manner it's taken out sort of price transparency from the markets and also um the drive to use capital um, for the purposes of, of, of more infrastructure, more production, um, I- individuals' employment, growth, development, and so forth, because capital, by virtue of having been backstopped, its risk um, that the banks had you know, imbued upon us in financial crisis of 2008, before that, um, going into this period, um, has been backstopped by the Fed. And what that's created is this um, ultimately, I think, unstable environment where the Fed has to either continue to keep doing what it's doing in more magnitude, um, which it did this coronavirus pandemic versus the financial crisis, um, or things are going to collapse. And I think in the history of the Fed, there was more um, external ups and downs in the economy, but there was more of a sense. If you look at the you know post late 40s, 50s, 60s into the 70s, there there was a there was a sense of developing the country, whether that was from the standpoint of you know highways um, of um, infrastructure of bridges, of roads, of highways, of, of hospitals. At the time, a lot of building was done in our country um, in the middle of the last century. And that's because that's where capital decided it could get a return. It was for other reasons too, right? But, but, but from the standpoint if we just talk about sort of, you know, capitalism and the Fed's risk and how that's destabilized the economy, which ultimately hurts the population, real people, and creates this disconnect between the financial markets and the real economy, I think it's been a negative. It looks good when there's a real crisis at that moment to throw money at the problem. But it doesn't actually sustain the economy beneath that problem. And it doesn't fix the economy, not that it's a job, but it it doesn't allow for the fixing or the sustainable planning of the economy um, because of that. So I think it's done more harm than good in this century. And I think it's a toss-up. Um, in parts of last century simply because other things were going on from an economic growth perspective that kind of competed with what the Fed was doing with respect to, at that point, mostly interest rates.
1: I think a lot of people are going to agree with you on that. I think many people would agree with you on that, no matter what side of the aisle they're on. And uh, we're, But we're at a point of no return. What can you do at this point? Meaning, if we wanted to we're in too deep to do anything about it, to make a change right now. You know, sometimes you talk to these bigger companies and you say, AIG, hey, your technology sucks. You got to change it. It'll take us four years to change it. Oh my God, I can't wait four years. Well, we're too big. We're so big. It's not like a smaller, nimble company. Like when America was smaller, a little bit more nimble to make changes. We're at a point of no return. But who, who would hate the most if America were to go back to gold standard, who would hate it the most? Who would say absolutely not? Who would be against it?
0: Uh, Wall Street, the banking community, would be against it. And and, and here's why. Um, and and I don't see us, for the record, going back to a gold standard, or, um, yeah, just I just don't see that because of this, or among other things, because of this. Because the banking community, having established a reliance on... The ability to have our currency created when it's needed. Fed can grow its books, Fed can move the level of our currency up and down. Um, so there is that symbiotic relationship between Wall Street, the major bankers, major financial institutions, and the Fed. It's most tight between those two groups than it is between, you know, Facebook and the Fed or Google and the Fed. You know, there's a very there's a very strong relationship between those two. And the reason um, that in the 70s, there was such a push to get off of the gold standard, uh, among other things. And this, you know, this, this is something that was building from um, what had happened in 1933, but then we went back on, we went back off. Is that the banking community back then? I also have this in the book. Uh, the banking community back then really pushed Nixon, who ultimately did it, um, but really pushed him to reconsider having a gold standard. And one of the reasons, in other words, to get off it. Um, And one of the reasons for that was that they couldn't really um, grow and expand from their own capital perspectives with their own backstop, the Fed, or just the the idea of moving money in general, if it was tied down, if it was tied to something physical, if it was tied to something that other nations, other actors had more or as much control of as they did. And so the idea of floating off of it and the idea of having solely a currency based on sort of a fiat nature to a currency is actually very palatable if, as a bank, you have a call on that currency. And with gold, it would be gold was more constraining, um, and I think gold would be more constraining. Um, and I think that's something that actually presidents have said on on both sides since then. Ben Bernanke. As as the head of the Fed was very much against the concept. Even it was brought up in the wake of the financial crisis, because gold was going up, the dollar was sort of hobbling Mm -hmm. along, things were Mm -hmm. sort of crippled. Um, He he went on record in front of Congress and 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 defended even possibility of returning uh, to a gold standard. I mean, so did so did um, the Obama administration. I mean, this was some, but it's more because of the banking community um, that would hate it the most.
1: Let let me ask you a. If we are on the gold standard, is quantitative easing possible?
0: It's much harder for that same reason. Okay. It, it, no. Is it possible? It's no. possible if we're not 100% on the gold standard, right? Because you have that leeway. But if, if we are,
1: are, let's just say if we are 100%, it's yeah, not it, possible, right?
0: It, it's not possible. You can't create gold, right? So you, you, can't, you can't elasticize gold or the relationship of gold to your currency because you can't You can't create it.
1: Yeah. It keeps a nation disciplined, though. I mean, it's a... Do you think the right thing is to be on gold standard? Is that the responsible right thing for the future of a nation?
0: I I think simply being on the gold standard today, given the sort of globalized nature of of today and currencies and sort of where they interact, um, I think would be... It would just be difficult to actually achieve. I do think a portion, if we looked at sort of composite currencies, I think a portion of gold um, is useful in, in restraining that sort of we can grow a balance sheet as much as we want. We will be here to buy all your mortgage-backed securities, your asset-backed securities, your commercial. Yeah, we we will we, we can't have that. Um, it, it would act, I think, as, as a way to contain that sort of balance sheet blow up and QE which I think would ultimately be better because it would force um, sort of economic decisions that are based on real capital being available right now as opposed to manufactured capital being available for markets whenever. Are
1: you are you someone who studied the... Uh, uh, J You sound like when you go into topics and you're uh, obsessed about it, you fully go study everything. Are you someone that ever got any... Uh, Interest in the JFK assassination, or not at all? That wasn't something that intrigued you much.
0: Um, it's interesting. I, I do, I do cover um, in in all the presidents, bankers, his his assassination, but not from this, not not in a sort of deep dive. I, I more looked at um, his relationships to to the banking community, um, to to what he said with respect to Latin Americans and sort of opening the country and borders and everything else. And so I, I didn't. Um, I, I don't. It's it's not my area.
1: Okay. Yeah, I was just curious to you know if you went into um, the the people who were not happy about the direction he wanted to go with Fed and, and gold and all that and well, you know, there were not I,
0: I, did, I did look at the one um, comment about um, that because there was such a because there's so much out there, there's so much sort of inquiry over over the concept of, you know, was it the Fed, was the gold, was it that he mm-hmm. wanted to take direction? Um, but but sort of in a in a an unlimited um, way. Um, so I, I, again, I can't really, um,
1: Fair enough. So we're not going to fit. I thought we were going to figure that out today. Nomi. I was, I was hoping the world to figure that. that out today. I,
0: I, I was on the grassy knoll though. I, I got as I was there cause I was looking up, you know, sort of the possibility of, but it just didn't fit into the overall structure of, and it was a black hole. It would have been a very deep black hole. It would have never finished
1: very, the book. literally very never good.
0: finished the
1: book. I agree with you. Yeah. I've probably interviewed 15 Mario. How many people have we interviewed on the topic of JFK assassination? I don't know. I mean, from people who held the brain in the autopsy room oh, to wow. Clint Hill, his secret service, the you know, agent, but it it's a black hole that'll last a lifetime. I and mean, we had Robert F. Kennedy, his uh, yeah. uh Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on, and I asked him about how much investigation he did. He said he wrote a book about it, and he really went down the rabbit rabbit hole. If you've not seen that interview, the last 30 minutes is very interesting. So, final thing here, topic to touch on before we go into the speed round, is yourself, do you consider yourself a capitalist? Would you say you're a capitalist? You believe in capitalism?
0: I believe in uh, fair capitalism.
1: Do you believe in socialism?
0: I also believe in democratic socialism.
1: So what do you think is too much taxes to, so, so I ask the question more with numbers, so you're a data person and, and I've uh, uh, looked at this a lot. I'm curious to know what you're going to say. Let's take aside capitalism and let's take aside socialism. Let's not give it any labels. Let me ask this question. I make $100,000 a year. How much money is too much for me to pay the government in taxes?
0: What should what should the ban be? I, I I think that depends on where you live making that money um, for one thing. So your hundred thousand dollars in New York versus your hundred thousand um, dollars in. Iowa.
1: Federal taxes. Just look at it from a federal tax standpoint. Don't don't break it down with states. So a state California thirteen uh, three. If I'm in Tennessee zero. If I'm in Texas zero. Florida zero. Just assume federal. I make a hundred thousand dollars a year. How much is too much taxes for me to hand over to the government for the hard work that I put in? How much is too much?
0: Of that full hundred? Um, again, it, it depends what you get back for. Given what we get back for it um, here, um, I think the 33, 40% level is is fair.
1: Okay, but uh, so- That's on
0: $100,000. That's on $100,000.
1: So so that's on 100000 Okay, how about a million dollars?
0: I think, on a, I think on a million dollars, I, I think there could be, I, I, I agree with a sort of proportional um, tax percentage on that. Um, so if I say 33 and a third or 40% is a max for $100,000, um, I could see that as like the first $100,000 mm-hmm. um, and then sort of a gradient in a slightly lower direction, to yeah. get up to the million, but, but still taxing, you know, that is a proportional amount.
1: So uh, up to hundred thousand dollars, thirty three and a half percent. Okay, up to quarter million dollars. Let's just say you're saying forty percent. If I'm making million up, uh, what should be my taxes a million up?
0: Well, again, I think you just do that same forty percent or whatever whatever the grid okay. is.
1: Okay, fair enough. Got yeah. it. So and then, from thirty three and a half all the way up to forty. Right. Fair. Okay. So okay. So then the states, the state you're in, the state I used to be in, you're in California. I'm in Texas now. Your state is thirteen-three. Do you think that's too much to be living in a state of California?
0: Um, well, there, there are certainly taxes in California. I, um, I, I, I do pay them, a lot of them. Um, but I also think um, one of the things California does, um, which other states don't do quite as much as it it sort of does referendum out the things that people have to spend their taxes the things that um are are, are voting people can vote on to basically decide where their taxes go yeah this referendum is on the ballot right it's kind of the equivalent of so it's like if i'm getting stuff for my marginal proportion or or additional proportion of, of taxes um i think that's and a state does that well or a nation does that well, if you sort of move out of California, um, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, and so at a certain level of, of, of earning, um, it's not as necessary, but for sort of individuals on the ground where you know, there's, there's health concerns, there's education concerns, there's, there's you know, safety concerns, all of that, I think money needs to come into the system to be able to sort of make it um, run.
1: California is taking that to a whole different level and they're losing a lot of people, especially the younger hungry people, not the people that already made their money, because there's a different story between your money making years versus you deciding you take your money to a place. For instance, I was in Monaco for our 10 year anniversary, my wife and I, we went there and, you know, they, they're the popular, the city is smaller than Central Park, right? And life expectancy in Monaco is the highest in the world. People live 89 years. Yeah, this is after they made their $100 million and they moved, moved to Monaco. That's right. different. You don't see a 22-year-old saying, I'm going to go make my money in Monaco, right? They're going to go to a different place. As a money-making years of your life, 25 to whatever the number is going to be, 55, let's just say, where you're willing to play offense and go out there and work the 12, 16-hour days. Um, do you think it's Bear the kind of taxes a state like California is passing down to its people?
0: Um, again, I, I think for the people just starting out and the people making less, um, that I would equate, you know, or sort of lower that tax relative to people making more, the people you're talking about who have more, um, who, um, who have more to be taxed um, than someone just coming in. I mean, I started out in New York City um, where, like, my entire paycheck went, I I mean, I obviously, you know, I started out Chase as an analyst. I mean, my paycheck basically went to taxes and my rent and that was, that was like it. Um, So, so, so I do think that it it does matter. Like you say, you know, whether you're coming in early um, in your, in your life, in your career, in your money-making situation, or if you're someone who works on tips or if you're someone who works multiple jobs, or if you're someone who works gig jobs um, that, that I do think, um, it's it's better to have a lower tax rate for for those people to get them into the economy and to help them build that sort of stability relative to people who who have made more or or have more. That's what I was talking about in terms of a proportional uh, sort of taxing because because that 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 makes them stay um, and it also brings a, a foundational kind of economic stability to those those people and therefore it, yeah, ultimately it it goes forward into the revenues of a state of a city like LA, um, if you have the people at the bottom, you know, able to move.
1: Well, I mean, I you know, uh, it's it's interesting you say that, and I agree with that. When I lived in LA, and I would go down that four hundred five every day, I would sit. I'm like, okay, let me get this here What the hell am I doing, spending two hours a day on the freaking four hundred five freeway? I landed one night, one day at three thirty. I wanted to go from LAX to Rafi's place to eat. It's 18 miles. It took two and a half hours to go there. I would not, what am I doing to go two and a half hours in 18, 20 miles to go to a restaurant? So, and then I moved to Texas and I had a guy sitting next to me who was a socialist. He's not a capitalist. And we were driving and he says, man, I don't like the fact that we have to pay the toll here in Texas. I said, well, the way Texas works is you don't pay state taxes. If you don't want to use the toll, then don't use it. Take the streets. You don't have to pay the tax. But in Texas, you pay taxes for things you use. In California, you pay for things you'll never use. Like they had an express road here in Texas, Dallas, and I would pay the money to go through this express, but there's only two cars. And I'm like, I'll pay this, no problem. I'm able to go past 300 cars. I never saw that in California. So when you're talking about and by the way, this is a man that left California at 37 years old, prime money making years, and I'm going to be making money for another 20, 30 years. And that could, they could have gotten a lot of those taxes, but they, they abused it. And I'm seeing a massive exodus with a lot of younger other people yeah. that relate to what I'm saying. So going back to, you said you believe in fair capitalism. I think that's the word you use. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think you said fair capitalism, and you believe in democratic socialism, socialist, uh, uh, socialism, which is an element of what Bernie talks about. But Bernie also talks about 70%. And you were supportive of Bernie. I think you guys did some work together. He relied on you on know, some of the economic stuff. What are your thoughts when we're talking about 70% of taxes and just bashing rich people? The top 1% of America, they're just so this and they're doing this and they're doing. That. Oh my gosh, you feel guilty to talk about the fact that you make some money. There used to be a time people admired successful people. I mean, you're somebody that's made millions of dollars. You're somebody that's very successful. You're somebody that essentially is top 1%. If you worked at Goldman Sachs as a top person, you are 1%. What's wrong with going to the 1%? And here's the thing. I don't want to be in a Bernie bash moment because I I truly believe a Bernie against the Trump stood a better chance than a Biden against the Trump. Because at least you know what Bernie stands. And that's one of the things I respect about Bernie. Bernie's Bernie. You don't know where Biden's at. When I looked at Bernie, I'm like, you know what? I, it doesn't matter if I disagree with this guy. I respect the guy that has his own ways of fixing things. And he doesn't flip-flop. And I would have loved to see those two guys going at it. But unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to see that. Although it would have been incredible debates people would have tuned into. So going back to it, I watch you. i watch your videos. And I've watched your interview with Bernie that you guys did, I think, in 2013 or 2016. I don't know what it was. It was many, 2009. many years. 2009. I watched that as well. I watched a lot of your work you seem very reasonable. You seem fair. You seem like you're able to stay in the middle and kind of uh, hear both sides of the argument out. How does someone like you, as reasonable you are get behind 70% for rich people?
0: So um, the work I did with Bernie was mostly on the fed and, and, and the idea of, um, and, and on Wall Street. So the idea of basically creating, going back to fairness, um, you know, sort of an auditing path, a transparency path, seeing what the Fed was doing, where it went, who was getting the most benefit, um, and this ties in, and also from the standpoint of, of, of Wall Street banks, um, to what extent were they basically creating securities and, um, you know, th- that was hiding or the risk that ultimately uh, we had all seen in the economy and the financial system, which I believe still exists. Um, it's been papered over. The Fed's thrown money at it, so it's deeper in the system, but, but it's there. And I think that, you know, so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about a, a fair um, environment from the standpoint of seventy percent for um, of, of all of rich people, um, you know, if you if you take someone and you know wherever you, you calibrate that number and you say seventy percent of all of your income um, is is gone, um, I, I I do think from an income from standpoint, not a wealth standpoint, I think that's that's very high. From a gradient, which is which is where I, I, I would disagree with an absolute level like that. Um, what, what I'm saying is that there there's, should be some sort of a gradient um, between someone more wealthy paying more of the initial part of their income Relative to you know sort of a number that that, that is that high so it becomes proportional. You're not paying 70 percent I don't believe um, It's necessary to pay 70 percent of your income, but I'll say this too. I think companies should pay more in taxes to avoid some of these situations in terms of getting money into the budget of our country, into reducing the deficit of our country, which of course now has grown because of the virus and and, and it does grow because of different crises. Um, I I think that rather than not paying taxes into the revenue of the Treasury Department, which right now companies pay about 10 to 13% of the full amount of revenue that goes into into our coffers as a nation, um, it used to be much higher than that. There's maybe a happy medium. But because they're not paying as much, just mathematically, there's there's a greater amount to be covered in order to run the country. And if there's a greater amount to be covered in order to run the country, and it's not coming from growth, um, which I think would be the better way to do it, you know, we talked about economic growth earlier, um, then having a proportional tax system allows some of that um, to be retrieved not 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 all of it not making up for for companies not putting as much in and not necessarily going to that absolute level for everyone who is wealthy in terms of their income Um, but i do think there's 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 a give and take there i I think that's a high number I, i i don't i don't um but but i also think that we have to as a nation use that money whatever it is Um, for things that actually sustain economic growth and companies and individuals and rich people could be doing that. It's not to say that that's not happening, but, but to the extent that taxes are taken out, they should give benefit to the overall country um, and the overall growth of our country. And I think that helps both the people at the bottom, um, as well as, those who are wealthier because you just you just have better roads like it doesn't take it might take you two and a half hours to go anywhere once coronavirus is over out of LA to anywhere else that could still happen but but the idea is that you have a more efficient system whether it's technological or, or infrastructure wise because money's going into things that everyone can use not just rich
1: not just poor but all of us and you think governments are being efficient right now with no. the, with our taxes? No, no,
0: no, That's so, why,
1: why, so why would why would taxpayers, why would taxpayers feel confident constantly paying more taxes while the government can go out there and pr- print money in quantitative ease and quantitative easing give it to no. whoever they want? And I'm sitting here working my ass off, making okay. eighty grand a year, one hundred to whoever it is, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and barely seeing my kids. And I'm seeing them being billed out, but I have to pay fifty percent of my taxes to you, and I'm not seeing the roads getting better, I'm not seeing streets getting better. I well, I, is, I have a very hard that, time with that. That's
0: exactly the point. That's exactly the point. The the fact is we shouldn't pay taxes into this massive quantitative easing money creation into just sort of a market perspective rather than building the roads or 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 having faster trains or, or whatever it might be or having better hospitals or more or more efficient you know, testing system now or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely, I, I, I totally agree with that. We, we have mismanaged the, the creation of money, let alone our taxes because of, well, because we mismanaged both effectively. Um, but, but throwing the QE into it, throwing the Federal Reserve's balance sheet into it, throwing that massive inflation of, of just the availability of cheap money that doesn't go into doing anything I mean, you know, I don't even have, I don't even see lines on the 101 when I get out of LA. And they're, they're not, they don't paint them. They're they're, they're old. You can't, you just make up your own lanes.
1: That's the point, though. Why why are they paying 13.3? And here's the thing, though, because look, I was telling you earlier, I lived there 24 years and we're looking at four other places to go live. And we were looking to go back to, you know, uh, somewhere around, uh, what is that uh, uh, place right by Agora Hills? It's right outside of Agora Hills. It's a nice area. We're looking at there. We're looking at Malibu. We're looking at uh, uh, Newport, right? We want to go back to LA. I'm LA. My friends are there. Everything I know is LA, 24 years, from 12 years old to 37. I'm LA minus me being a military. We looked at Greenwich. We looked at Florida. We looked at uh, 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 Texas. California went from first place to last place in no time because – They keep saying, pay more taxes, gas tax, this tax. And California's like, okay, how many more things you're going to keep raising and nothing is getting better? So a question for you. Who are you comfortable having more power? People, government, or companies? In order, if you were to say one, two, three, what would you say?
0: I would say people, companies, and government.
1: We're on the same page. Okay. We're on the same page. So we, you know... I feel like I can talk to you for hours. I'm really enjoying this. You know, I thought this was going to be an hour interview, and we're already, I told you, I said, this is going yeah. to be an hour because yeah. I have meetings. I'm like, I'm already an uh, hour and 45 minutes we've been together because I'm having a blast with you. I respect the way you reason uh, and process issues. It's very, uh, it's very trusting the way you process issues. You know, I, uh, I can't say that about everybody, but I can say that definitely about you, and I, I, I appreciate that. Let's do a quick speed round. I'll give you a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And if you don't have anything to say about it, just say I have nothing to say about it. We'll be fine as well. Uh, Bernie Sanders.
0: Better against
1: Trump. Uh, Milton Friedman.
0: Uh, We don't have free markets anymore. Biden. Um, Kind of not clear on his policies.
1: Fair enough. Karl Marx.
0: Uh, (laughs) Not great for women. But had some good
1: <laughs> 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 All right, Barack Obama. Diplomatic. I agree. Trump. <sighs>
0: Knee jerk.
1: I think that's a fair assessment. Uh Richard Wolf,
0: Um academic.
1: Safe. Safe. <laughs> Ar- Arthur Laffer. I Arthur- know
0: he's a Marxist, but but uh, he he's also an academic. That just came to my mind.
1: Arthur Laffer, don't know. Okay, uh, Alan Greenspan,
0: out of his league. Um, hurt the hurt risk because of derivatives.
1: Frederick Hayek, don't know. Okay, Ludwig von Mises, libertarian. Interesting. I'll finish with that one. Um, first of all, I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for making the time to be a guest and took all the questions that we went together with. Very, very good perspective. I'm certain the audience enjoyed the interviews just as much as I did. And uh, once again, thank you for taking the time and being a guest on Valuetainment.
0: Thank you so much for having me on, Patrick. Be
1: well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick PatrickBitDavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.